Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Early this week, one call from one economist and one team on Wall Street made a ton of headlines. It came from Goldman, and this was the quote from near the top of the Southside research. In the near term, a complete service sector recovery will likely require fully overcoming virus fears and returning to office work patterns. Both now appear likely to take longer than we anticipated. That was Jan Hatzius and the team over at Goldman Sachs. The chief economist joins us right now. And Jan, because of that, you've downgraded your forecast. Can you just walk me through this just a little bit more, the degree to, think, to which you think we will decelerate in the coming quarters? We are looking for a pretty significant deceleration as we go into 2022. Right now, you know, obviously 6.5% growth in Q2, probably more than that in Q3, but then we're at 1.5 to 2 by the second half of 2022. And that's partly because the, the return to full uh, utilization in the, in the service sector is it's a slow process. Just one data point that I think is very important. Uh, the office occupancy rate in the United States is still only 30% of the pre-pandemic level. And even in Texas, which is most advanced, uh, it's only 50%. And this, I, you know, I do think those numbers are going to be much higher eventually, but we're, we're still, it's a very slow process. You're on 1.5 to 2% trend growth. Yeah, and that was amazing. Just to read that, 1.5 to 2% trend by the back end of 2022. So second half of 2022, Jan, you're looking for 1.5% to 2% GDP growth. Now, that's the call. Help me understand how you reconcile that with your call from the Federal Reserve. How does the policy call reconcile with the growth call that you're making? Well, the policy call is that the Fed is still going to be very gradual in exiting from the current policy stance. So... We have tapering starting in early 2022, announced at the December FOMC meeting, then a pretty gradual, you know, 15 billion a meeting uh, tapering pace. So it takes you until the end of 2022 until tapering is done. And then whether you get rate hikes thereafter is going to depend on whether the criteria that the Fed's laid out are met. So what are the criteria? 2% inflation confidence that you'll be somewhat above 2% for a while and full employment. When those conditions are met, they will hike. Our baseline is that that happens in late 2023, but I think the risks are towards the later side, could slip into 2024. And that is you know, somewhat later than what markets are pricing, I think, for all of these things. So I think it's consistent with a growth forecast that is still strong in the short term, but decelerates quite a lot because of the withdrawal of fiscal stimulus and less of a boost from reopening. Okay, that said, some of the uh, factors that you're talking about, like people getting back to the office and the Delta variant will subside. Uh, potentially, it'll take a couple months longer, but will subside. I mean, why do you disagree with city macro strategists that actually put out a report today saying the stagflation surprise regime uh, is tactical in nature and shouldn't last more than a couple of months? 
Well, I certainly agree on the uh, deflation side of uh, of things that we, you know, have seen obviously a big increase in inflation, and we do think that is transitory. We have a, a, a sharp deceleration in inflation in terms of core PCE. You know, we think will be below two percent for much of 2022. So I think on that part, uh, we, you know, we certainly have a, a similar view. You know, I think on the growth side. We've been very optimistic about the the rebound in, in growth in 2021, basically because you've seen a massive amount of fiscal support and a big boost from reopening. And those things have not quite played out yet, but they are temporary. The reopening is a is a one-time boost to the growth rate and you know, permanent boost to the level, but a one-time boost to the growth rate. And fiscal actually turns and into a negative impact in 2022 because a lot of the enormous support of 2021 isn't repeated in 22. Sure, we're not going to get instant trillion-dollar money dumps like we got during the pandemic. It's not going to be instantaneous fiscal policy, but we're still talking about trillions of dollars in longer-term economic spending on Capitol Hill. That is making progress. I know it's spread out over a long time, but how do you factor that in here? Well, I think that is the key point, that it's spread out over a long time. So the headline number is going to be very big. Let's say it's going to be $3 trillion when all is said and done. But there are two things to consider. One, um, maybe one, one $1.5 trillion of that is going to be offset by higher taxes. And number two, it's spread over a 10-year horizon. So you basically have to divide all these numbers, you know, $1.5 trillion or $3 trillion by 10. And then you're talking about something that's sort of in the 1% of GDP range and nowhere near the support that the American Rescue Plan provided for 2021. And what I'm most interested in, in terms of the impulse to growth, is what's the change from one year to the next? What do we get there? Fiscal support worth about 12% of GDP in 2021. And even with our assumption on fiscal, which is actually fairly expansive, we only get 4% of GDP in 2022. So that's an eight percentage point reduction. Now, that's not an eight percentage point negative impulse, because some of this, of course, is the flip side of a more normal economy, but it's still pretty sizable negative impulse. Yeah, and just quickly, just to round things up, you've done a beautiful job of explaining how you think growth will decelerate in the coming years, the coming quarters. Can you help me also understand how you expect the rate of inflation to decelerate as well from the high rates we're at right now? Does that persist into the new year? We don't think so, because if you look at the high rate right now and the upside surprise, it's very concentrated in a small number of areas that are very likely to be temporary. The single most important one is used cars, and the used car market is already showing some signs of relaxation. We have data on auction prices, which have been going down over the last six weeks or so that hasn't shown up in the, uh, in the CPI and PCE yet but it will show up over the next several months. And so you're going to go from a positive impulse to a, to a negative impulse, not just neutral, but a negative impulse as you go into, into next year. Other observations, uh, I think wage pressure has been sizable, but looks quite temporary and probably related, at least in part, to the top-up unemployment benefits, which are expiring. Yeah. And then lastly, inflation expectations still seem very anchored at least for the longer term. Jan, always super sharp and great to catch up with you on the week. You downgraded growth. Jan Hatzius there, Goldman Sachs, Chief Economist.
Lee Ferrich, State Street Head of Macro Strategy for North America, joins us now. Lee, this conversation about stagflation light. Just give me the pushback. If you want to push back, Lee. I'd love to push back. I mean, stag, stagflation, it's a phrase that, that, that comes up virtually every slowdown we have, or if we have a high inflation print and growth's not that high, people talk about stagflation. Real stagflation is really, really, really hard to get in an economy. And really, the last time was probably in the 70s, but that's when you've got price controls, right? You know, because if you have a slowdown in the economy, price pressures diminish. That's in a normal functioning market economy, that's what happens. So this idea of stagflation, this, you know, growth is going to be, you know, as you say, north of 5% this year. We've got some reopening inflation pressures that we're seeing now. That's not stagflation. I mean, you can call it stag light if you want, but you're basically saying it's not stagflation. Let's call it something new that actually doesn't exist. Elite, important to recognise where the price pressure is coming from. Is it coming from demand that's too big or is it coming from supply constraints that could persist? How would you characterise it? Um, it's a good question, actually. I mean, it's from supply. You know, in my mind, this is from supply constraints um, that, that, yes, they could persist. But listen, what, what we need to do and what people aren't doing, not even the Fed really, is to work out or to, to, to define what's the difference between transitory and persistent. Right? And the difference between the two is transitory will go away on its own without the Fed having to do anything. Right? Price pressures will diminish. They will come back down towards 2% or maybe even below without any Fed action. Persistent means that without the Fed tightening and slowing the economy and reducing demand, we will have constantly rising inflation for the foreseeable future with no change in that path. It will need a shock from outside to stop inflation rising. That's not where we are. These are reopening pressures. Yes, some retailers, you know, restaurants, etc., taking the opportunity of the reopening to, to raise prices from where they were pre-pandemic. And people are desperate to go out again. They're desperate to go to restaurants, etc., and they're paying those higher prices. Well, but that doesn't mean that they'll raise prices again next year or the year after or in six months' time. And that's what persistent inflation is. This is transitory. Lee, one of the key determining factors, as many people say, is wages, right? If we start to see wage pressure, that could change the equation to a more persistent inflationary impulse. And I have to pair these ideas of stagflation light and higher wages with this statistic. The biggest U.S. single-family landlord boosted rents by 8% nationwide just in the second quarter, giving you a sense of some of the basic costs of life going up. How much do you expect wages to have to increase with the labor shortages and fa the fact that Consumers are looking at these costs and saying, I can't afford to get the same wage that I got last year. That may be the case, but are they going to get paid more? You know, when we talk about labor shortages, there are 6.8 million people out of work more than they were pre-pandemic. Yes, we have labor shortages now because of, the, you know, because of the, the, the supplementary unemployment insurance, but that runs out in September. We're going to get a huge increase in supply of labor in September. Right? And we had a 3.5% unemployment rate before the pandemic with no wage inflation or no meaningful wage inflation. Why do we think we're going to get it now? What do we think has changed in the labor market well, during the pandemic, which means suddenly workers have all this bargaining power and they're going to get all these wage increases? Yes, we get headline stories now, absolutely, in the summer. We talk about sign-on bonuses and shortage of workers. But as the unemployment insurance runs out in September you're going to see that supply of labor come back 
and suddenly you're not going to have sign-on bonuses and you're not going to have wage increases in the same extent. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right on the rents, and, and, and that's a huge problem for people. But this is where we come back to the stagflation and stag-like, whatever. And because- Lisa, just to jump in, Lee, medium rents in New York, and I understand New York's not America, but medium rents in New York were down 17% in 2020. But this is the distinction between big cities that have gotten slammed idiosyncratically by sure. the pandemic and some suburban areas that have gotten their prices increased to record highs and at record paces. But you make a good point. It's not consistent across the board and people can move uh, if they so choose. But Lee, honestly, you raise actually a very controversial point, which is the gap in how quickly people are coming back online, the low participation rate, despite the fact that the economy does seem to be going back and the fact that a lot of companies say that we need workers, we want to hire people. Is it really just that simple that the enhanced unemployment benefits will roll off and that people will go back, see their kids go back to school and kumbaya, it's solved? I think so. I mean, where are the 6.8 million people gone? Do they not need to work anymore? You know, once the unemployment insurance has rolled off, and, and you make a good point about childcare, because I think that's been a factor as well, is childcare. And they're, 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 listen, there's some nervousness still about COVID, quite rightly with the Delta variant. But the fact is, those 6.8 million people who were working pre-pandemic still need to work. And we can argue that some might have retired, etc. But 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 even so, there's a large number of people who aren't working now, who were working before the pandemic. Why do we think they're not going to need a job? They're going to need a job when the unemployment insurance runs out. How do you think the Fed views all of this, Lee? I think the Fed views this that, that you know. They haven't got a clear picture yet. I think the Fed views it that we're going to have to wait until later this year and maybe even the first part of next year to get a clear picture of the labor market and what's going on. And, and the labor market is the key thing for the Fed now. I mean, we, you know, Powell has told us this over and over again, but they don't know what's happening in the labor market yet. None of us do because of these uncertainties we're talking about now. It's probably November, December data, maybe even into 2022 before you, we start to get some sort of clear picture of the labor market. I mean, you mentioned before about the consensus risk in Q4 and, and you know, the uncertainty there, and you're absolutely right. And the same goes for the picture in the labor market. So while there are still so many known unknowns, while we try and figure out what the tra- trajectory of monetary policy is going to look like, the resurgence of COVID-19 and the Delta variant is going to look like, how do you construct a portfolio? How defensive would you recommend being here? I wouldn't be that defensive at all. I'll be absolutely honest because we're still getting $120 billion a month of liquidity. You know, we're still hitting all-time highs in equity markets. I think there are certain areas you can be more defensive. I mean, clearly, emerging markets are more of a challenge, perhaps, than, than, than a lot of people think they should be because valuations are more attractive. But the thing is that we're still seeing you know, equity markets hit all-time highs because we've still got a huge amount of liquidity. Now, what we're seeing is the duration trade the sort of cap, the, the high-tech, sort of large-cap high-tech stocks, they're the ones doing well now, whereas you sort of Russell 2000, your mid-caps, um, which is more of the reflation trade, have, have certainly underperformed over the last few months. And I think that sort of duration, that NASDAQ over Russell trade, is probably the one that's going to continue um, over the next couple of months as we have these growth fears, but we have the liquidity. Um, but, you know, it, it's too soon to be defensive, I think. I mean, once we get a clarity on taper and how fast it will be, I think it will be very gradual. It won't start till probably early next year. It, you can't sit on the sidelines with $120 billion a month being printed. A lot of people feel that way. Lee, good to catch up, buddy. As always, Lee Ferridge there, State Street Head of Macro Strategy for North America.
Some news out this morning from the Washington Post, their story published in the last couple of hours, Lisa. Here's the quote that's going to get a lot of runtime today. Vaccinated people infected with the Delta variant may be able to spread the virus as easily as unvaccinated people. This according to unpublished data cited in a federal presentation obtained by the Post. And the question I have is why did the federal government not release this data publicly when they were re-implementing mask mandates? The idea here, recommending masks, you could get people to do it if they understood what the logic was behind it. If that's the case, why isn't there more clarity on this, John? Well, let's try and get some clarity now. Andy Pecos joins us. John Hopkins University Bloomberg School, a public health professor and virologist. Andy, good to catch up as always. And hard for me to get you to comment on an internal document that you haven't seen either. But does this reconcile with your experience at the moment as well? Well, what we've been hearing anecdotally is that, you know, there have been cases of Delta in vaccinated people. Uh, I think the other thing to emphasize is as case numbers increase, the number of exposures that vaccinated people have to Delta virus increases as well. So we would expect to see some slight increase in cases in vaccinated people. Now, the critical thing that we're learning now, though, is just how much more dangerous the Delta variant is compared to others, other variant strains. And it really does seem like the data that was first coming out in unvaccinated people is really being amplified in that population. And that is that this virus is incredibly more contagious. Um, if you get infected, you get more virus in your system after infection. And what follows from that is that you become more contagious. So even if vaccinated people have a 10 to 100 fold lower amount of virus in their system, yeah. that still may push them over the limit of when they could be showing symptoms or spreading the virus. So Andy, I wonder what this would mean for restrictions, because just because you can spread it as easily as the unvaccinated, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily more likely to be infected by it. Of course, that's not the case at all. So Andy, what do you think this would mean for restrictions? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a cause for concern. So I've got my mask on again here today. Our hospital complex today just want in, reinstituted masking policies, even among vaccinated people, simply because we as an institution need to be much more careful about potential infections and the spread of infections here. So I think this is all going to go back to what's your local situation look like. If you're in a place where Delta is really, really spreading fast, then extra precautions need to be put in place. But but let's be clear, if we had a higher vaccinated population in this country, these concerns would be released. And that comes back to the core issue. Masking vaccinated people helps. The critical thing would be to increase the number of vaccinated people in this country and to do it rapidly. Andy, what's the latest on the efficacy rate of preventing infection among vaccinated individuals from the various vaccines? So the numbers that I've seen so far is that uh, the e efficacy has dropped from about 90% to somewhere in the 70% range with Delta variant. But again, that data is a couple weeks old, and we know that the virus has been surging, so we're waiting to see some more reports there. Efficacy against severe disease is still maintained relatively high in, in vaccinated populations, which again is a good sign. So I think that the emergence of Delta shouldn't make people more hesitant about getting the vaccine. In fact, just the opposite. It's, it's the 
best tool that we have right now to prevent infections. And so Delta should be a warning to people, a, a, more of a motivation than anything else to get the vaccine. Andrew, Andrew, what can we learn from the other regions of the world that have already seen this happen? In India, you saw a big spike in Delta cases that then went way lower. You're seeing the same thing playing out in the UK now. Is there any reason to believe that the U.S. will not follow that path? Uh, we absolutely will. The question becomes, what's the magnitude of the number of cases? Um, infections like this spread in peaks and valleys. Um, vaccines and other public health interventions can help lower that peak so that we don't have as many serious cases and deaths. Um, and that's where we're trying to sort of work with some of these masking policies right now. Lower that peak. Don't let it get to the to a, to an uncontrolled stage, and then we can recover faster and um, have less um, cases and less of a strain in our hospital systems. Andy, just quickly, the original goal, of course, was to protect the most at-risk in society, and in doing so, protect the healthcare system, not just in this country, but elsewhere. Israel has really led the way on vaccine distribution over the last year or so. They're going on now to give a third shot to the over-60s. Do you think we're going to see more of that elsewhere? I really do. I haven't seen the data yet, but if everything continues on the trends here, what we're probably going to see is that the elderly are going to have a more waning of the antibody responses induced by vaccination. And with a more susceptible, more, more transmissible virus, that population becomes the most important one for us to focus on. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see a vaccination, a booster vaccination come out specifically targeting those high-risk populations. Interesting. Andy, it's good to catch up, as always. It's good to see you. And thanks for your hard work, sir. Andy Pekos there, Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health professor and virologist. Terry Haynes joins us now, Pangea Policy Founder. Terry, it's great to catch up. Lisa forwarded on your note. I should have read it. I've read it now. 80%, 85% chance that we get infrastructure in October. Just walk me through the timeline for you and which bill is which. Good morning, all. Uh, there are four. The reason why it's October uh, is that there are, for, for, for final action, is there are four things going on that will all sort of collide. Uh, and it's the end of the fiscal year, the end of September, which is why I pick October. You have two things that absolutely have to happen. The federal government has to be funded, and we have to deal with the debt limit or debt ceiling, uh, which needs to be extended or, uh, or suspended. Uh, then we get to the fiscal infrastructure bill, which is almost ready, almost baked. But the, the, the fourth thing is there's really a, a, a intra-war, intramural war among Democrats about this human infrastructure piece, which hasn't really even been defined yet, uh, much less be, been given a, a budget top line. Uh, or maximum spending amount, and Democrats are going to have to fight among themselves for quite a while to, to figure out exactly how much they want to spend and what's going to be in that. My view is very simple. Uh, work expands to fill the time allotted. Uh, the time allotted is the end of the fiscal year when all this other stuff has to happen. Uh, and what I think happens is we get funded, we get a debt ceiling, we almost certainly get infrastructure, the physical infrastructure bill, but what ends up happening is the uh, uh, the human infrastructure piece, I think, is only about 30% likely in any form right now. Terry, the idea of this infrastructure plan being market positive, as you say, is interesting to me in light of the fact that it's $550 billion, which is substantially low the numbers being thrown around earlier this year. Why is this a market positive when people had expected so much more earlier? 
to me, Lisa, uh, and I think it's a perfectly valid point. Uh, to me, it's a market positive in sentiment more than anything else. Uh, it, there's an awful lot of talking up about uh, how how this is going to help stimulate the economy and move things forward and help fix our infrastructure problem. Uh, frankly, you know, I think there's truth to all of that, but I think it's a great deal overblown. Uh, in, in others, you know, there, there's no urgency about how this money is going to get spent or when. Uh, road projects take years to start, much less to finish. My favorite example of this is a 40-mile stretch near my uh, near my uh, the place where I grew up in Pennsylvania. That's taken uh, 10 years to uh, to to become permitted, and it's still not finalized. Uh, you know, this is going to take a long time, and I think the economic uh, impact. Uh, is overblown. But that said, uh, market sentiment being what it is, uh, this is a positive. Terry, you mentioned earlier the fact that we're going to have to deal with the debt ceiling in the fall and September, October, even though it expires tomorrow. And something else that expires tomorrow is the eviction moratorium. And yet Joe Biden, the president, waited until yesterday to actually say something about it and ask Congress to act. Is there any likelihood that something can be done by tomorrow? Hi, Kaylee. Uh, two things. One, uh, the debt limit, as everyone on this program knows, certainly, uh, does expire tomorrow, but uh, Treasury usually employs this thing they call extraordinary circumstances. In other words, you know, shoveling additional amounts of coal into the fire to keep things going for as long as possible. So that in, real, in, in reality, the debt ceiling is going is to end up hitting uh, in late September, early October, maybe even November, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, the other thing is, uh, on on the eviction moratorium, uh, what I'm hearing and understand is that um, the president's last-minute uh, ask uh, certainly didn't help marshal forces behind it, number one. Number two, there's a lot of people in the House that want to do this. Number three, uh, it's going to be very difficult to uh, to pass in the Senate. Uh, so I tend to think it, it, it probably doesn't happen, uh, and uh, I think people ought to prepare for that. Uh, they may end up sticking something in the infrastructure bill if it goes very well and, and ends up uh, and ends up getting passed by next week, which is a possibility. Although I think it's a little murky right now. Uh, but other than that, I don't think I would look for smoother, quick action here on Congress's part. Terry, good to hear from you, sir. As always, thank you, Terry Haynes, there, Pangea Policy Founder. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.